just occurred to me listening to the gospel uh, when Father Emerson read that Jesus said, do you understand all this? They said, yes. <laughs> well, we continue this week with uh, more about Jacob, about the stories of the great matriarchs and patriarchs of Israel. And so I thought I would use the reading from Genesis uh, as a jumping-off place for my sermon, which will focus principally on the family and what we mean by that and how do we understand uh, what family is all about and its importance. To say something about how Paul may give the individual Christian person uh, the ability to have the strength, the stamina, the internal self-regulation, to be able to meet the challenges and the opportunities and to make a difference in exercising leadership in your family. And finally, to use a way of talking about family bolstered by the final sentence in the gospel where the Savior says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. How do we understand the great traditions uh, with a capital T that animate us as a community of faith we call the church? And um, since for Episcopalians, tradition with a capital T is one of the three sources of authority uh, that we have in our understanding about what is authoritative in the Christian faith and life, the Bible, the tradition, and our human reason and experience. And that is the three-legged stool upon which all of our understanding rests as Anglican Christians. So let's continue with the soap opera. We've had Jacob for the last two or three weeks. We've had Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah. And then we had Esau and Jacob. And then Jacob again last week. And Jacob this week. We're going to keep moving with Jacob. And we're going to get to some other things as we move in the next few weeks. So here's the family situation on the ground in terms of what's going on here. Laban is Jacob's uncle, who will also become his father-in-law. And Leah and Rachel are Jacob's first cousins. So think about that for a minute. And <clears throat> Jacob comes to Laban and says he loves Rachel and he wants to marry her and that he had worked for him for seven years if he'll let her marry, if he'll let uh, him marry Rachel. And so Laban says, sure. So he must have been really in love with her because he worked for seven years and it says in the text it hardly was any amount of time for her. It seemed like it passed in an instant. So he comes to Laban and said, I'd like to marry Rachel now. And he said, fine. So he tricks Jacob. 
Remember earlier on in this story, Jacob tricked his brother, Esau, to sign his birthright over to him? And there's going to be big trouble pretty soon about that. But he tricked him. Uh, the, the word Jacob, the name in the Hebrew Bible, means someone who is morally innocent. I think Jacob was anything but morally innocent. And here he now gets tricked because he goes into the tent. Oh, by the way, I left this out. There's Rachel, there's Leah, there's Zilpah, and another woman who's not mentioned in this text, Bilhah. Those are also his daughters. And Zilpah becomes Leah's maid, and she's in the tent too. And I suspect as we go forward, we're going to have children from Rachel, Leah, Zilpah, and Bil- by Jacob. So it's a situation, isn't it? Is, is there any family like that that you know now? <laughs> Who does this? By the way, these women, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So he goes in and he, I don't know, it must have been a big party the night before or something because apparently Jacob wakes up in the tent and he goes, oh, it's Leah. I mean, what happened? So he comes to Laban and he said, you tricked me. And uh, I, you know, and he said, well, it's not the tradition among our people to have this, the youngest get married before the oldest. So I'll tell you what, if you work for me for another seven years, you can marry Rachel too. So he said, okay. (laughs) He's going to end up working for Laban for 20 years. And so Jacob ultimately marries Rachel. Rachel's going to have a son named Joseph. You know, with the coat of many colors. So this is a colorful group. And it's a model of family that's different from our own. I'm belaboring this because, you know, there are a lot of Christians who are on about the family and family values and the traditions. If you read the biblical text, it seems to me that there are pluriform families in the Bible. There's more than one kind of family. So to say that we have had an understanding of family that has marched steadily from the time of Adam and Eve to the present moment is ludicrous to suggest to thinking people. And this is an example, though, of something else that's very important for each of us to know. And that is God can work with anybody. Because the big overarching question amongst all of this family drama and turmoil is, can God work with these people? So for the last two or three weeks, the answer has been yes. Jacob last time was a fugitive. He ended up with his uncle. But he was on the run because of Esau now getting restive for having been tricked into signing away his birthright. No land, no wife, no family. And now he comes, he gets tricked by his uncle, 
into marrying the oldest sister, and then he'll ultimately get to marry Rachel. And then there's Zilpah and Billah who come into the picture too, but we don't want to go there at this particular moment. Now this is a story about God's steadfastness and about the fact that God can work with anybody. But it's a good way to jump into the whole idea of what do we mean when we speak about family. And in our own culture and in our own day, we're having that conversation again. And I suspect in every age we need to about what it means and how we understand family and who constitutes family and what does it mean and what uh, is the Christian person's role and responsibility with regard to the nurture and the affirming of family in every form that we find it that is righteous. From 1815 to the present, we have had in this country a net migration off of the farm. Well, what does this have to do with anything? Well, family took a whole different move after that. You know, if you're raised on a farm, those of you, some of you may have been raised on a farm where you know, you know, mom and dad are at the farm. The hands are at the farm and the kids are at the farm. They're all there together 24-7. So maybe somebody who is the farmer's wife could look like the New Yorker cartoon in the living room with a woman sitting there with a guy in a bad pair of Bermuda shorts and a Hawaiian shirt smoking a big cigar and she says to him, you know what? Cole Porter hit the nail on the head. Night and day, you are the one. But there are ways in which we can understand how parenting changes. You know, the kids get tiresome with mom cooking for the hands, so they go out into the field and dad has them for a while. Or most of the day as they get older and then they go back. So now we have the Industrial Revolution has happened and we're moving into cities and towns and making stuff. And so dad is not home. And we begin the 19th century bourgeois family that becomes now a model for many American people about what family is. You know? Edmund Burke, the great conservative member of parliament, Anglo-Irish guy said, there is nothing shorter than the public's memory. And it's true about the nature of family. We need to understand family differently and we ought to be on the side of affirming family in all of its plural forms. It's hard to do. You know, most of us associate with people like us. We feel more comfortable with people like us and we have the tendency to believe that people like us are the only people because that's who we see most and that's whose values we feel comfortable with, but there are all different kinds of families. You know, my grandmother one time was taking me into the city of Paris Christmas time, and there was a Santa Claus there ringing a bell, and she said, come inside, David. You can talk to a Santa Claus inside that is not chewing tobacco. <laughs> 
we did not associate with people who chewed tobacco. Rather, we associated with people who eschewed tobacco. In any case, Paul has something to say about what we do in, in this regard with the nervousness and the anxiety about family and about how we understand family and about how we strengthen families. Because he says that in each of us is present the spirit of God. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And as a personal, individual resource, that then gives us the stamina, the internal self-regulation, to be able to exercise leadership in our families, to maintain the non-anxious presence, and to begin to shift things in a more uh, whole direction. W-H-O-L-E. You know? It's the same word in the Greek and in the Hebrew Bible that means salvation. Wholeness. And completeness. So Paul tells us today, when he speaks about this, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so in all kinds of families, that's what we seek and that's what we, we look for. Edwin Friedman, who I quote all the time, he's one of my heroes. He wrote a lot of books about family process. And he said, you know, the best and healthiest families are only symptom-free 70% of the time. Now that may be bad news for some of you because you'd want 100. I'm pretty buoyed up by 70 I don't know if I've ever got to 70, you know, 30% of the time you're a little out of kilter. That wouldn't be a particularly bad idea, you know. But somehow we need to understand families as the imperfect thing that they are. And just like in Genesis, God works with them. God works with you. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned an article in the Atlantic Monthly, probably in the fall, I'll have more to say, how to send your kid to therapy. Right? I think the, the writer is Amy Gottlieb. You can, get it, you can get the article online. She goes to graduate school to become a therapist. And she studies all the therapy stuff to do this. She practices her hours, as you need to do. And now she's ready to be a therapist. So she goes out and has an office. The first five or six people that she sees are absolutely textbook. All of the stuff that she learned about family and about really stuff and everything. One of the big things that was the current thinking and is for many is successful parents, uh, successful families need to be attuned to their children. They need to be attuned. So she's doing this, seeing these people and everything. And then she has somebody come to see her. Uh, and we'll now start to have this repeated over and over again. A young woman in her 20s who says, I loved my parents. 
I had wonderful parents. They were always there for me. I love my brothers and sisters. I have a great job. I love my apartment. But there's something wrong. I feel a great sense of emptiness. I don't know what's the matter. So, Amy Gottlieb said, gee, I've never heard this before. What do you think might be the problem? Well, one of the problems was that you're not as special as you were raised to believe because everybody isn't on board with that view. And you're sort of surprised about that. Now, in the article, she says, when you take your kids to college and you drop them off at the dorm, they have rules in place and people stationed to say, okay, you have to go home now. Leave your kids at the dorm and go. Time to go. I would have gotten into therapy because I thought, well, they just dropped me off and drove away. <laughs> right? Her point is, is that, you know, you and I need a little adversity to learn some stuff. I sometimes think that if we had no neurotic conflicts, we'd have had no Beethoven. Or Hemingway. Or whoever you want to talk about, Goethe, I don't know. You know, because we're working something off, right? And beginning to understand a little bit more about our humanity and how we become the best human being that we can be. So maybe perfection isn't what we seek in that sense. A new understanding of perfection may be a good thing. You know, perfection in the New Testament, when it's used in Greek, means mature. And what might mature mean? Taking responsibility for your own being and destiny. That might be a definition of what maturity is. The great saints of God were absolutely sure that they were dependent upon no one else for their salvation but God. And we see that in the course of the biblical witness, that appears to be affirmed over and over again. We are dependent upon no one for our salvation but God. Now, the tradition that the Savior speaks about here is not traditionalism. It's a living thing that is resilient enough to, be, to meet uh, new situations. And that's why he says we bring out something new and something old. You and I may need, each of us, to renew our understanding of what family means to understand ourselves sometimes to be in a position of advocacy with people who have a monolithic understanding of what the nature of family is and everybody must fit into this or they're not in. Now one of the things we've learned about the nature of creation is that it's diverse. 
Wonderfully so. And so too, human beings in their relational life are diverse. And Christians need to be on the side of affirming the best part of that. Whenever I have people who come to see me and are talking about fidelity, commitment, responsibility, don't you think we ought to be on the side of those things in whatever form they come in? I would think yes. That's been our business for a long, long time. So this week, uh, give thanks for the opportunity to exercise leadership in your family. Uh, Give thanks for the opportunity to uh, embrace a more, um, a richer view of the nature of family life. And always remember that God can work with you no matter what. Amen.